Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by OldSchoolShirts.com. Hey, check them out. You like defunct teams and leagues and T-shirt form? Well, you'll find them there, but a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Do you remember a radio station of the past or perhaps a mall that you used to go to? All kinds of great cultural and sports memories can be found at the great folks at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. This telecast is being brought to you by Cadillac, America's number one luxury car and your authorized Cadillac dealer. By Sunbeam, built with quality, backed by service. By Aetna Life and Casual, you get action with Aetna. And by Rockwell International. What a scene it is. The Houston Astrodome, where up till now they played almost every sport in the world except tennis. And tonight it's tennis. Not Wimbledon variety, not Forest Hills variety, but in this panoramic scene, a happening. A wild scene almost reminiscent of college football with the celebrities present, with the big band here, with dancing cheerleaders and all of the rest. That's the way it is for the battle of the sexes, Billy Jean King against Bobby Riggs. And it's hard to believe, but probably more than 30,000 people are in this arena for an all-time record tennis audience anywhere in the world. Hello again, everyone. I'm Howard Cosell. We're delighted to be able to bring you this very, very quaint, unique event. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello again, everyone. Your pal Tim Hanlon here. It's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast devoted to, of course, what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming on by, and uh, we appreciate you finding us in the uh, vast thicket uh, of choices in podcast land. Um, We appreciate it to no end, and hopefully we will delight you today. Uh, with a uh, scintillating conversation about a great topic. Our guest this week is Michael McCambridge. Now, you longtime listeners of the show may remember uh, way back in 2017 as we were getting our sea legs for this show. uh, Michael McCambridge uh, and I had a, a tremendous conversation in our third ever episode about Lamar Hunt and the origins of the American Football League. Uh, And I highly encourage you to find that episode number three uh, from 2017, March 17th of 2017, uh, uh, to be specific, uh, and the book uh, that he authored, amongst other things. Uh, If you have read that book, the Lamar Hunt, A Life in Sports book, you'll know just how awesome uh, Michael McCambridge's uh, work is, meticulously researched uh, and very passionate uh, about how uh, various stories in sports uh, have played out. Uh, he is also the author of a bunch of other books like America's Game, uh, which kind of d- uh, goes into uh, sort of the evolution of, of football becoming such the uh, pro-dominant um, sport it is today. Uh, the original uh, college football encyclopedia for ESPN, which is a an, an enormous and amazing tome worthy of a, uh, a revision, by the way, I think, uh, in terms of all the stuff that's happened since that writing. The Chuck Knoll book, his life's work, et cetera, all kinds of great stuff. But this week... As the uh, clip sort of uh, gives you a hint on, uh, is uh, perhaps his uh, greatest tour de force, this book uh, that we're going to be talking about uh, with Michael. It's called The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. And 
longtime listeners of this show will recognize, that, of course, that uh, our initial sort of entree into this little topic that we've created for ourselves over the years, uh, that which is forgotten and lost in, in sports history, teams and leagues, defunctness, all that stuff. Uh, for me personally, of course, uh, emanated out of the 1970s, a child of the 70s. I was, uh, as many of our listeners have been. Uh, the for me, the entree was the North American Soccer League and the Cosmos, as you well know. Uh, but uh, the 70s in Toto, right, were uh, perhaps uh, the most uh, uh, intriguing pivot point in the evolution, I guess, if uh, if you want to call it that, of uh, sports's journey uh, into true professionalism. Um, uh, you know, pro sports has been around forever, but long before and certainly since. But uh, as Michael and I talk about in this conversation, uh, there's no question uh, in my mind, regardless of our uh, relative youth uh, in the 70s and our perhaps, uh, uh, you know, cloudy judgment by, uh, you know, in comparison, um, the 1970s, there's no question it was a transformational time in lots of things in culture, especially in the United States, but especially in sports. Um, and that clip that you heard is one of just a number of searing events that uh, cannot be ignored and were inflection points. Uh, and that was uh, the battle of the sexes, if you remember that. And yes, someday we'd like to get Billie Jean King on the show. We have been trying for a little while, but perhaps we need to redouble our efforts because so many great things that she was responsible for on a whole bunch of fronts that uh, occurred in the 70s. But in 1973, and specifically that clip uh, with the inimitable uh, and um, incomparable Howard Cosell, September 20th, 1973, live from the Astrodome. Yes, a Thursday night primetime showing on ABC television network. The Bobby Riggs versus Billie Jean King battle of the sexes, uh, a, just a, a gigantic event. Uh, that uh, in many regards uh, brought not only tennis, but women's uh, professional sports into the limelight. And as we'll talk about in our conversation with Michael uh, in just a few minutes, uh, the uh, the evolution and the pivot point, if you will, of, of where women were, if you will, in the pantheon of pro sports and sports generally, uh, and where it sort of has evolved to now in a world where we've got the WNBA and National Women's Soccer League and Athletes Unlimited and, and, and women's college sports uh, blooming uh, uh, quite robustly and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of that has a direct line traced back to events like this, in some cases, even specifically this event, not just tennis, but women's sports generally. And uh, let's just uh, fast forward for those who may not have been around at that time. Uh, let's let's just have a quick listen to just how that played out. Third match point for Billie Jean King. Looks a little like Margaret Court now. Oh. A lot of ladies would like to have this another double. Equality for women. 
equal rights. It was Billie Jean who fought for equal pay for women in the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament and got it. All of the women of America, or at least most of them, seem to be caught up with the anticipation of this match. Billie Jean went into virtual seclusion. There was talk before the match about her health, whether or not she'd even be able to go ahead with the match as scheduled or have to be the match would have to be postponed. It turned out instead that Billie Jean King was perfectly ready. And not only ready, but willing and able, she played her own game, resting up, being non-communicative, but preparing herself mentally and emotionally and physically for a stunning performance against Bobby Riggs. Once again, the winner of the Battle of the Sexes, Billie Jean King by scores of 6-4, 6-3, 6-3. This ABC Sports exclusive has been brought to you by Cadillac, America's number one luxury car and your authorized Cadillac dealer. Now, this is Howard Cosell, along with Frank Gifford, Rosemary Casals, Gene Scott, and Leroy Neiman, saying so long from the Astrodome in Houston, Texas. All right, so many things uh, in those two clips there, and, and this is not a specific episode devoted to uh, that battle of the sexes. Actually, the second version of such, if for those who might not recall, there was an, uh, a battle of the sexes won uh, between Margaret Court and Bobby Riggs uh, earlier that year, 1973, in May of, uh, of that year. And um, uh, there's a whole story as to sort of how this one came about and uh, the increased significance of the second one. And, and uh, so in many respects, lots of different interesting angles uh, to that story, but but prime among them, and there's a reason why Billie Jean King is on the cover, among others, uh, of this new book by Michael, The Big Time, uh, is that uh, as, uh, as uh, white hot comet moments uh, in sports in the 1970s, this was certainly one of them, by no means the only one, right, in terms of boxing with Muhammad Ali and uh, the, the, the Super Bowl uh, uh, exploits of uh, of teams like the Dallas Cowboys and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And uh, I mean, just a whole litany of uh, and of course, the things that we love, right? Uh, Challenger leagues is a whole sort of part of this discussion and this book devoted to things like the ABA and the WHA and even the World Football League and the North American Soccer League and uh, pro softball and all those kinds of things. Uh, so many great uh, topics and themes. I mean, Hank Aaron uh, breaking the home run record. All these things um, in uh, are are just uh, wonderfully crafted into uh, this book, which I, I I get enthused about a lot of different titles, but this one perhaps uh, certainly rises to our immediate top five uh, uh, of all time. Uh, and again, it's called The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. It is almost 500 pages in length. It is, as I hinted at before, like most Michael McCambridge projects, it is meticulously researched. And if you uh, uh, it grew up in the 70s, if you remember the 70s, if you are of a certain generation and you only just heard in passing this thing called the 70s, uh, you uh, owe yourself uh, a do yourself a favor. Get this book. It is um, it is probably uh, it's indispensable. Uh, as Sally Jenkins has said, a great sports writer, it's indispensable history, and it's probably the best uh, encapsulization or uh, description, I guess, of, of sort of the broad strokes of what the heck was going on in the 1970s when it came to sports, professional and otherwise. Uh, and I'm not going to waste any more time, um, aside from the fact of 
uh, berating you and uh, <laughs> encouraging you highly to get a copy of this book. Uh, the best way, of course, to help support this show is to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, search up this episode number 321 uh, with our pal Michael McCambridge, and uh, you'll find a convenient link or a few uh, to the book, and we'll get a couple of uh, pennies, nickels, maybe a dime or two of referral love when you do it that way, but you can get it wherever good books are found. Uh, and let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the conversation. And uh, if you don't believe me now, you will after this discussion. Here's our chat with uh, the great Michael McCambridge. It's been too long. Let's talk about the 70s and sports. Here's our conversation we had just a week and a half ago. Please, as always, enjoy. So, uh, how you been? Um, I mean, look, we uh, you were one of our very first uh, guests back in March of 2017. Uh, and we, at the time, talked about uh, the late, great uh, Lamar Hunt uh, and uh, all of the things that he essentially helped contribute to, um, uh, you know, a lot of kind of the things that we've sort of delved into uh, since, right? Uh, the foundation of the, uh, the AFL, obviously his legacy in... Uh, the North American Soccer League and soccer since then, all that kind of stuff. Um, remind our audience not only of uh, that knowledge, but uh, your your background, because you have been writing about sports uh, for a long time in a lot of places. Well, I was in my previous life. I was the pop music critic at the Austin American Statesman for three years and then the film critic for five years. And I left in 1995 to write my first book. And as it happens, all of the books have been about sports. So the first one was a book about the history of Sports Illustrated called The Franchise, and then was a modern history of the NFL called America's Game. And the next two books were were biographies. And the first one was Love Lamar Hunt, and the second one was the Chuck Knoll biography, His Life's Work, which came out in 2016. And... Uh, after that, I was casting about for what the next step should be. And, you know, we're all, we all respond to sports most acutely in our childhood when we discover sports. And my childhood was in the 70s. And so I, I always had an outsized fascination with sports in the 70s. But one of the things that occurred to me um, as I look back was even though the decade has a reputation for, you know, long hair and low inhibitions and and shag carpeting on the walls. It was also a hugely consequential decade um, in the history of sports. And it was clear to me, even in my dim recollection, that this entity of spectator sports, the industry, if you will, of spectator sports, was far different at the end of the decade than it was at the beginning. And it was different, not just because my perception was more mature, it was different because of fundamental changes and the way that sports had moved into a more central role in American popular culture. So that was the the very broad social history that I wanted to tell with this most recent book. Yeah, look, and that's my kind of my first real question about uh, a, a sort of a, a survey and a uh, an investigation, if you will, of what was going on in the 70s and how it transformed um, sports, it, it, how were you able to tease that, um, that out that, uh, and, and separate, I guess, that sort of personal youth, uh, infused recollection, right. And I, I clearly I fit the same category. We're probably around the same age 
and my attachment was, you know, professional soccer and the cosmos and all that kind of stuff. But you're absolutely right. Uh, I guess the question is, how do you um, separate your, um, I call it hagiography, but uh, your your wondrous uh, experiences and and recollections of your youth with the actual factual um, uh, evolution, if you will, of sports? Uh, how do you distance yourself from that in writing this? Well, in in the best case, you hope for some degree of synthesis. I mean, there were things there were things that I remembered vividly. Um, because I was eight or nine years old when I heard them that made its way into the book. Um, I can remember ABC TV, which which was the sole broadcaster of college football in the 70s, and you would have one game a week. ABC recognized that college football was popular, and they did a they did a preseason preview show in primetime, narrated by Lee Majors, about to be the six million dollar man. But back then, just a, a fairly well-known TV actor. And I can remember part of Lee Major's arch narration um, focused on the, the last game of the 71 college football season, the Orange Bowl between number one Nebraska and number two Alabama. And uh, I was probably nine years old at the time, and I think I, I recorded the program on my mother's cassette recorder, but I remember... Um, Major's analysis of the game, his comment on the game, which Nebraska won 38 to 6, was that Nebraska turned the Crimson Tide into a polluted pond. And that sort of that sort of arch narration was certainly consistent with the time. And it was one of those things that stuck out to me. So as I was going back and writing this, this history of all the things that were going on in sports, that was just a, a single parenthetical line that was part of uh, what I hope is a more mature and more objective, larger framework of, of all the changes that occurred in the decade. So um, I think a case could be made to your point that the smart thing to do would be to completely divorce yourself from all those um, vivid childhood memories. But in my case, I, I sprinkled uh, a few of them in there along the way because I thought they added depth and texture and detail and, you know, if you can't quote Lee Majors 51 years later, really, when can you quote him, right? Well, exactly. And, and in some respects, actually, the, those memories probably are like little light posts or, or, or mm -hmm. signposts, right? That uh, maybe are magically uh, your uh, almost, uh, I don't want to say a starting point per se, but you happily kind of uh, push towards stumbling towards those. And but here's the other question about that, though. And, and given the age of the Internet and YouTube and all that kind of stuff, and I have... I am absolutely susceptible to this. How do you, knowing what you remember or or stumbling across something you forgot all about, but then uh, then somehow remember or recall, not getting stuck in rabbit holes because I do it all the time, and that that damn YouTube algorithm is exceedingly good at keeping me in there. Um, I think in in my case, because I only had two years to write the book, and because I'm. I'm a slow writer. I mean, like America's Game took me five years to write. Uh, the Chuck Knoll biography took me three years to write. So so I'm not a fast writer. So part of it was the fear of not finishing was a good governor for avoiding getting too deep in, in rabbit holes. But it was, uh, you know, I have to say, YouTube is a remarkable resource 
for researchers just in in going back and tracking the development of sports broadcasting there's a clear demarcation between what sports broadcasts were like before monday night football started and what sports broadcasts were like after and the you know the clear and obvious difference is because of Rune Arledge and Monday Night Football, because of trying to reach a more general audience, um, which was primarily female in when sports moved back to prime time in 1970, there was a there was just this persistent emphasis on the narrative. Here's the protagonists. Here's the conflict. Here's what we're going to find out today, and that just that just didn't exist um, in any real sense much before then. And I, you know, I spent some time on YouTube watching a television broadcast of the first game of the 1970 World Series. And, you know, there was no mention of the Reds hadn't been to the World Series in almost a decade. There was no mention that the Orioles were trying to redeem losing to the Amazing Mets the year before the only person interviewed in the pregame show was strangely enough, the singer who was going to be singing the national anthem before game two. So it was just this preposterous um, sense of, okay, the camera's pointed. Now we're going to bring you the game and we're going to talk nervously about a couple of things, but we're not really going to provide you a storyline or a narrative to follow. We're just now going to show you the game. And, and after Monday Night Football, that changed dramatically, remarkably quickly. And you can see just in watching YouTubes of sports events later in the 70s that Rune Arledge paved the way for what sports looks like still today. Yeah, um, I, but let's skate there, though, for a second, then. So the, the television media uh, thing, right, the evolution of just that medium alone um, I think it, it, tra it was transformative on a lot of different fronts, uh, news and entertainment, but probably most, uh, uh, I guess, most uh, uh, dramatically is what you're alluding to with sports. It, Monday Night Football clearly was part of it, but things like the NFL Today, right, which was a, a show that was kind of very basic and straightforward, but then was remade. Uh, almost into a, a personality driven kind of thing. Um, the, the advent of cable and ESPN by the end of the decade, uh, sure. uh, these anthologies, Wide World of Sports and, and, and the NBC and CBS versions of those things. Um, you could feel, I mean, literally in real time at that during that decade, the um, the evolution. I mean, literally, it was like playing right out there. There were these new nooks and crannies and crevices that uh, seemed to be kind of. Uh, evolving in 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 quite dramatic fashion uh, uh, to the to the observant viewer. Yeah, I think one of the one of the four major developments that I focus on in this book was sports moving into prime time on network television during the seventies, and the the tip of that warhead, of course, was Monday Night Football. And I think you know it's worth remembering that there hadn't really been a regular sports program on prime time since the early 60s when friday night boxing on nbc died and almost took boxing with it um there was real fear that the you know regular exposure on television of boxing was depressing the audience that would turn out to watch boxing and and so nobody had gone back into prime time never mind the 
the trouble that um, NBC had with ratings for that program. So when Pete Rozelle pitches the idea of Monday Night Football, the two major networks that carried pro football both balked and ABC, which was a distant third at the time, originally wasn't interested and finally finally wound up taking it only because if it didn't, Roselle was going to start a, a fourth network that was probably going to cost ABC a lot of its affiliates. So even as popular as pro football was in the 60s, there was still a feeling that it was too, too male, too marginal, too parochial to succeed in front of the large primetime audience. And Monday Night Football proved them wrong. And because Monday Night Football proved that conventional wisdom wrong, the floodgates opened. A year later, you get the first night game of the World Series. In 72, you start getting wall-to-wall primetime coverage of the Olympics. 73 was the first time the NCAA Men's National Championship game was on in primetime. And it just went from there. And you're right, as the decade wore on, there was more of an awareness that American sports fans were thirsting for more information, other scores, other highlights. You know, one of the things I try to convey at the decade's beginning is how extraordinarily difficult it was, especially if you're on the East Coast or the Midwest, just to find out a final score. It's not that the game wasn't televised. It was There was no real sports report beyond two or three minutes of local news on the 10 o'clock news. And if a game started late or was played on the West Coast, you might not even get the final in the next morning's newspaper. I grew up in Kansas City, and whenever the Royals were on the rest West Coast, and I would get up the next morning to find out how the Royals did, there would be a little box on the front page of the sports section that said bulletin. And then a one paragraph saying, as the, as the newspaper was going to press last night, the Royals led the California angels three to two in the bottom of the sixth inning. And so then one would go to school and only when, when you got home and got the afternoon paper, could you get the final score of a game played nearly 24 hours ago? And, you know, that was the reality of a sports fan's life at the beginning of the seventies, by the end of the decade, to your point, it had, it had started to change. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you're a fan uh, and you want to watch, uh, you want to find out that the agate uh, in those newspapers right. was kind of the go-to and uh, more often than not, you would be disappointed because it would say late <laughs> yep. and it wouldn't wow. be in there. I, you know, I, I think in my mind, it almost felt like USA today in the early eighties, their sports section kind of, made it a little bit more um, uh, immediately palatable aside from television and ESPN. And it also, it also took out um, the local angle Um, by the end of the seventies, it was clear that there was much more national coverage, even in local newspapers, but you know, the Des Moines, the Des Moines register was going to have to cover Iowa high schools. Um, The Los Angeles time was going to have to cover you know, whatever the handball or beach volleyball match was. And USA Today dispensed with all of that and treated the entire country as sort of your local your local audience. And by the time USA Today started early in the 80s, 
that was the orientation of a lot of American sports fans. They might follow and root for their local teams, but they also wanted to know what was going on in the other conference, the other division, what other teams were doing. Um, and, you know, you can draw a direct line to that, to people watching NFL games today on YouTube multi-view with four games going on at a time. Um, that It's that desire for information and instant awareness and that nearly inexhaustible thirst for more, 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 more games, more scores, more stats, more of everything. You mentioned on the Monday Night Football thing, and I think this is a concentric circle uh, to one of your other sort of overarching themes. Um, the idea of, of the NFL being a sort of a prime time, not only broadcast and live uh, a game, but more of a spectacle, an event, uh, something for not only the hardcore fan of, of the NFL, um, but frankly, also the casual viewer. And by extension, um, the idea of, say, uh, women who may not be pro football fans per se, or may simply tolerate the fandom of their, you know, their significant others in the household. But, you know, when you throw in some personalities like, you know, Dandy Don Meredith and Howard Cosell and stuff, right? Half of the the broadcast is about the, the insane things that they may say, let alone what was going on on the field and maybe attract sort of that other kind of viewer. Now, I, I guess that where I'm trying to go through with this is, um, Beyond sort of creating a bigger television tent, I guess, for casual as well as regular fans, it was also a little bit, though, uh, kind of a, a a little bit of a door opening for, I guess, frankly, the realization that there are women out there who are not only probably fans of sports, but probably are participating in sports and, and are starting to make their own sort of inroads uh, as well. Yeah, it's it's definitely true that one of the other major developments and arguably the the most resonant of all was women getting involved involved in unprecedented numbers not just as athletes but also as coaches administrators and spectators and uh, you know if if monday night football had only had the same viewership that sunday afternoon games had on cbs and nbc it would have been canceled after one season. But because it was able to attract a co-ed audience and a large percentage of females and hold their interest, um, it allowed it to be a success and it allowed it uh, allowed the TV industry to see that there was potential there um, that was untapped. And, you know, it's it seems obvious in retrospect but for sports to be as big as the people who loved sports wanted them to be, you couldn't exclude an entire gender, right? You, you sort of had to sooner or later open up sports for everybody. And, you know, it, people talk about Title IX, which was hugely influential, hugely important in the decade. But there were other also crucial developments Obviously, the the attention that Billie Jean King earned in arguing for equal prize money for major championships and the giant hullabaloo over the battle of the sexes between her and Bobby Riggs in 1973 was important. And after winning that match under a terrific amount of pressure, Billie Jean King went on to do a lot of really important things in, in helping to create an infrastructure for women's sports. Her and her husband, Larry, started Women's Sports Magazine. Um, she launched the Women's Sports Foundation. 
And, you know, while remembering the subject of this podcast, her and Larry King started World Team Tennis, which was a very ambitious um, fool's errand, if you will, that at the time when the entire tennis world was fighting tooth and nail over power and access to players and space on the tennis calendar, here comes Billie Jean King and Larry, and they've got a whole new idea for a different way to brand the sport as a team sport. Billie Jean King recognized that America responded to team sports, and now they were fighting for a part of the calendar as well. And it was it was a strangely compelling uh, league and system, and a lot of the players who played in it really enjoyed it. But it you couldn't think of a worse time to start a new sports league. So yes, yeah. Look, and and uh, the idea of co-ed uh, uh, play was was intriguing. I mean, I also uh, uh, pursued by later in the decade the International Volleyball Association. Um, you know, where you're you're you've got sort of the best uh, of both worlds, so to speak, and in a true team kind of format. I almost wonder, as we sit, I, I wanted to get to your your thoughts about the current state of sports going forward a little later, but um, it's probably a good time to sort of bring this up. I, I Given the um, overdue and dramatic advances in uh, women's uh, sports uh, in this country, and frankly, worldwide, especially on a professional level, um, I almost think it's it's about time that uh, the idea of co-ed team sports on a professional level gets revisited, uh, given you know what's happened of late. Certainly. And I think if um, world team tennis, you know, there, there were some leagues, as I'm sure, I think you will agree with me on this. There are some leagues that were just never going to make it whenever they started. The World Football League was probably not ever going to to work in the way that the people that wanted the World Football League to work. <laughs> um, but world team tennis, I think if it had come on the scene once the cable television industry was more mature i think world team tennis really could have caught on um because those matches could be really compelling the scoring system um was such that you weren't going to have a five-hour match the way you do and you know sometimes in men's singles and the crowds liked it but it was just it, it was just too soon and uh, you know so that i i think that was that was one of the things that uh, WTT was up against. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this actually play out a, a lot. I mean, I know in um, uh, in bowling, of all things, back in the '60s, right? There was sort of this uh, uh, approach of professionalism, and, and on one in one corner were uh, the folks that wanted to be a, a tour kind of based thing, where it's individuals versus other individuals on a weekly sort of tour basis, and and others who literally wanted to have sort of a, a professional team-based kind of league. And we've seen this play out in tennis and, and a lot of other sports where, uh, you know, golf has had its dalliances and, and um, it's, it's just, it's interesting because these things uh, history may not repeat itself. They certainly rhyme. Uh, It certainly rhymes. And, and in this case, it just seems to me like maybe this is an overdue, um, uh, you know, rhyming uh, to to come. And let me get back to, let me get back to one other thing to your point about, um, could we see a revival of co-ed sports? Um, I would hope that it would be a little bit more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
a little less testosterone driven than the stories we hear about the International Volleyball Association, where the a lot of the men in that league had what they called a six pack. And if they spiked a ball into the face of a woman player, the other men on on his team would buy him a six pack of beer. So I talked to some of the women in the IVA and they did not think it was a particularly great um, co-ed experience, um, notwithstanding, uh, you know, the, the good intentions that might have existed. The women who played world team tennis really did like it. And uh, in, in most instances and, and really enjoyed the camaraderie and the, and the, the team aspect of it, which makes total sense because the idea of being uh, a single competitor on a tour week after week, tournament after tournament, the idea of just having some teammates for a change you could see would be appealing. I've often thought that um, it would be a terrific development if on the last competitive day of the Summer Olympics, they did four by 100 and four by 400 relays in track and field with co-ed teams, two fastest men and two fastest women from each country. But and they do it in, they do it in swimming now, don't they? Uh, I don't know if they've done it in swimming yet. I could see it in swimming as well, but um, co-ed track and field relays would be, uh, people would show up and, and love to watch that. And I, I could see that happening um, sometime in the future. And yes, I, I agree with you. I think that that might be coming back around. All right. What's this? Oldschoolshirts.com. Fantastic. You've heard me talk on and on and on about the great folks and the great wares at oldschoolshirts.com. Like the name implies, it's old school and it's shirts, and they put them together, see, into what they call oldschoolshirts.com. Uh, it's like the name implies, but of course, we love them primarily uh, for their sports wear. You name the league of the past, you name the team of the past, the chances are huge that they're going to have more than one shirt and different color schemes for things that you may remember from the United Football League or the major indoor soccer league or various flavors of the original XFLs, plural, or the Federal League, perhaps, or maybe World Team Tennis, or maybe it was the North American Soccer League and on and on and on. But hey, it's not just sports. It's also great cultural touchstones and memories from the past. How about the officially licensed Evil Knievel connection? Connection? How about collection? Yeah, that's what he's trying to say. Uh, various colleges. How about dead malls of the past? Ice cream parlors, maybe even radio stations that you might remember. Hey, even there's a latest edition of the old, now old, Aloha Stadium commemorative shirt. All that kind of stuff and more. You will find at least a handful of shirts that you will just transport you back into your past and you will amaze and impress your friends at the same time. It's oldschoolshirts.com. And we got a promo code for you, of course. Let's save you some dough while you go there. And it's uh, promo code is good seats. Good seats. That's the promo code at oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Hey, P.F. Wilson and your friends at oldschoolshirts.com, thank you for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. 
one of the other uh, uh, themes that you uh, pull out of uh, of this 1970s period of time, uh, and again, seemingly uh, obvious in retrospect, but I think it's really striking to kind of see uh, this sort of evolution of um, uh, professional athlete as, frankly, I don't think you would call it at the time, but but is now perceived as a, as a brand, as somebody who is uh, in charge of their own, if you will, destiny. Uh, in some cases, being sort of uh, beyond the sport or the team or the situation that they're playing in. I mean, you mentioned Billie Jean King. She certainly uh, fits that category. But, you know, clearly there were just some amazing um, uh, icons that were that evolved, that came about, that 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 made their mark in this decade. Uh, it almost became, I think, in many respects, sort of the. um uh, the metaphor or the uh, the model, if you will, for for what we experience today, perhaps maybe a little over the over the top now today with professional athletes, even those <laughs> some maybe with lesser lesser skills, maybe than some of these greats from the 70s. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the appeals of a player like Julius Irving was in addition to being a really talented forward um, who could leap out of the building, there was an aspect of performance artist to him and um you know i argue that irving was the last truly mythic figure in american sports because he was the last superstar um to attain that status without most of the country seeing him i mean growing up in kansas city we we got no aba games nothing and yet you know a lot of kids he was their favorite player and they'd never seen him. Um, and, you know, even competitively speaking, Hubie Brown talks in this book about how he had to adjust not just to Julius Irving's game, but his effect on the crowd. Even, you know, he was coaching in Kentucky then, even the Colonel's home crowd. Um, and so he started ordering his players anytime Irving was near the lane driving, just foul him. Because if Julius got up and, and executed one of his thunder dunks, suddenly people are in the aisle and, you, you know, you're losing your, your own fans. Um, I remember Brown saying that because uh, Artis Gilmore, the, the talented center, who was a terrific shot blocker, was the anchor of those mid-70s Colonels teams. And Hubie Brown said, the first time I saw the six-six Irving dunking over Artis Gilmore, you know, with his armpit over Artis Gilmore's head, he said, I just, I can't let my players get embarrassed like this anymore. And so that sense of, yes, he was a great player, but there was also, you know, almost this Elvis has left the building aspect to Dr. J, which was intensified by the fact that he wasn't on TV every week until he jumps to the NBA in the 76-77 season. So uh, that was part of the the mystique as well. Yeah, they also, we remember too, right, the the, uh, the television landscape was certainly much uh, less diverse uh, than it was uh, by the end of the decade and certainly since then, right? So things like, you know, prime time heavyweight boxing fights. I mean, I, you remember as a kid, right, 
uh, talking about your friends. If Ali was, you know, kaput or is he going to, is he going to do it again? Uh, you know, right. that, just that kind of, and it was, you know, it's one of the three networks. And, and in some cases, frankly, you weren't, you weren't able to watch it because of the advent of pay-per-view and that kind of stuff. But the NFL, you know, people like Jack Nicholas, who you have on the cover of this book or, or even Henry Aaron and, and, and the, um, evolution of the Atlanta Braves as America's team via a, a cable magnate down in Atlanta. Um, you know, some of these are just uh, names that, um, are unparalleled and will never be challenged, I think, in terms of their greatness all in this one decade. Mm -hmm. It was, and again, it's, you know, there's, uh, you've had a lot of guests um, on, uh, on leagues from leagues that, that um, perished in the seventies. And there was certainly that sense of it was the last decade in which people without marketing surveys, without suitable funding, without television contracts, would just say, what the hell, let's try it. Let's put on a show. Let's have a, you know, let's have a new hockey league. Um, whether people want a new hockey league or not, let's just try it. Um, I, I, I think it's dangerous to, to describe the era as innocent um, because there were a lot of things that went on in the 70s that that were far from innocent, but I do think it was the last era um, that wasn't really self-conscious. There wasn't a lot of self-awareness. There wasn't a lot of um, there wasn't a lot of thoughts about what is this going to look like five or ten years from now. Um, a lot of people and a lot of business um, investors in sports leagues just living for the moment and. That was part of what characterized the decade. Yeah, obviously, uh, one of the chapters in this book is uh, nearest and dearest to my heart, and that's the Outsiders. That's chapter ten. If you're uh, you're reading along with us at home, um, the um, I, I guess I'm always I'm just fascinated by why the '70s was such a fertile ground for um, creating new leagues, whether they be challenger leagues or. Uh, new sport new sports if you will like like north north american soccer league for example there really wasn't a uh, an incumbent there um i guess I, I, it's just to me is is I, i'm always eternally befuddled by why such moxie and entrepreneurialism and maybe just out and out greed in the cases of gary davidson and 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 friends with the the three leagues that challenge the big ones right uh, all of them achieving certain levels of of uh of change in, in the respective um, uh, incumbents. But I, I, I just, I wonder why it was such a fertile time for all these new ideas. I would argue it was because of the success of Lamar Hunt and the American football league, this idea that within a decade you could create a league out of thin air and it would become part of the fabric of the country that you could not tell the story of a Denver or a Kansas city or a Buffalo or a San Diego without mentioning and taking into account um, the team from the American football league that, that flourished from that city, that that was, um, you know, and it was just, I think people have grown a little bit more sophisticated, but certainly in that time, medium sized cities that aspired to compete with the New York's and Chicago's and Los Angeles's, um, there was a real sense of 
we become major league if we've got a major league baseball, football, basketball, or hockey team. And, um, you know, I, the mayor of Kansas City at one point, Emmanuel Cleaver, said, uh, this is a great city, but we have, to, we have to be realistic. Without the Chiefs and the Royals, we're Des Moines. We're Omaha. You know, that that was, those were other medium-sized American cities in the same region that had lots of industry and, and lots of good people and lots of entrepreneurs. But one of those cities had two major professional sports teams and the other two didn't. And to that point, and this is perception being outweighing reality, but to that point, he, he was right. I got to hand it to you in this book. It's uh, while the themes are are, are evident and, and and very well um, uh, put together, uh, you don't shy away from dropping in uh, d- distinct and um, specific references that only somebody from the seventies could truly appreciate. Right? So, sports phone, right? You mentioned <laughs> yes. it there, just casually, and then you know, but but you could, I mean, you could double click that word right there and. For a whole generation of fans out there, that was a lifeline in between the newspaper situation you were describing earlier and the beginnings of cable television and ESPN, which not many people had in 1979, right? Exactly. And it was, you know, I think when people look back on that today, um, a lot of their audience of sports phone was gamblers. And I, I think it would be it would be naive to assume anything else. At the same time, I think as sports fans grew more involved and more sophisticated and began to be, to have greater awareness of what was going on nationally, there was just a compelling desire to try to get the rest of the picture as soon as possible. So if you're in Austin and Texas is good. You don't really want to go to sleep without finding out what happened to USC and UCLA. And so that would necessitate either trying to pick up, a, you know, a hundred thousand watt radio station from the mountain time zone or the West coast. I mean, I heard stories. I wasn't able to confirm them. So they weren't in the book, but I heard stories that in the late sixties and early seventies, when the NCAA basketball selection committee was gathering in uh, Mission, Kansas, to to have their you know to decide the field for the tournament, on that last Saturday night before finals were in, they guys would go out to their cars and see if they could pick up, you know, what's happening in the Big Sky Conference. Is it going to be Weber State or Idaho State going from there? We won't know until we get the score, and so. There was that sense of everything was ephemeral. Everything was elusive. You you really had to do your work to find out what was going on nationally. Now, of course, it's it's in the computer that's in your pocket. And also uh, throughout this is uh, there's so many. I mean, you mentioned gambling, right? And that 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 is something that has essentially never gone away. Now has been brought into the daylight, so to speak. But uh, I, yeah. We'll talk about it in a minute, like, you know, what, what what possibly could go wrong there. But but I mean, you mentioned things like um, and again, this is, is so interweaved so well into this. I mean, you mentioned some of the early iterations of artificial turf, right, which in yeah. the 70s became a thing. And, and the Astrodome having kind of pioneered it uh, 
you know, in the late 60s and the AstroTurf thing. And and yet it wasn't, you know, people kind of sort of don't really remember. It wasn't universally um, embraced. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were there were a number of situations, which you, you recount in the book there, that stadiums actually uh, went back to grass. Like I know Soldier Field did that and right. and, and a bunch of others. Uh, or Hornets Bowl, Park, Candlestick Park. Yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. right. So, uh, but to me, these themes are, are it, it, they're, they're wondrous because you like, you think like we're in modern day times and all these things are kind of new problems and they're really not. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, one of the points I wanted to make is that the way professional sports and major college sports looks today is connected and influenced by the changes that occurred in the 70s. And in some cases, yes, maybe those changes would have happened eventually. Um, maybe sooner or later, free agency was was going to come to all sports. But it first took a Kurt Flood, and then it took a Marvin Miller and an Andy Messersmith, Dave McNally case Um to be decided by the arbiter Peter Seitz to open that Pandora's box. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then baseball could have gone on much longer without free agency. And who knows when the other sports would follow. If it wasn't for Title IX, it would have taken much, much longer for women to assert themselves in the sports sphere. But it didn't happen alone because of Title IX, as we discussed earlier. Billie Jean King figured prominently, and so did the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, AIAW, which was the governance organization that ran women's collegiate sports in the 70s when the NCAA couldn't be bothered with it and was actually fighting and lobbying against Title IX. And to see the connection between what happened in that decade and the way that resonated into the future and can still be felt in the present is that was the part of the story that was really the revelation for me. And, and there were times during the, the 300 interviews that I did for this book where I was just shaking my head in wonder at, you know, if this hadn't happened, what sort of sliding doors moment um, would have changed everything else that happened since then. And so in that sense, uh, I think this is a this is at times a messy, complicated chronicle of a messy, complicated decade, but it was it was certainly an eventful one. Well, so it, making that that uh, that connection, then, um, and you know, I, we sort of sit at the precipice now in 2023 with. Um, I mean, look, big time sports, especially on the pro level, <laughs> to a to a certain extent, maybe the collegiate level. You mentioned betting before ha is a has been business, right? It's been a business since you know the eighteen hundreds when baseball teams were coming together for the first time. Right. Um, but to me, it feels like we are at a, a, a such another level of that now, where private equity, for example, owns multiple teams and uh, and betting and. Um, NIL and collegiate sports and, uh, you know, and the pricing and the suites and the hostage holding of the cities to get new billion dollar stadiums. I, I, it feels like an arms race. And it feels uh, I wonder, um, and I'm, I'd really love to hear your opinion about this, given what you, you've written about in this book and, and, and what it's sort of the proge progeny of it. Uh, it where, where do you think pro sports kind of lives right now? Because I don't know, it feels very hyperinflated and 
at some point it's it there's got to be some kind of in my mind some kind of correction because the average fan is not even part of the equation anymore it seems well yeah but i think the way i look at it is there is to your point so many not just millions but billions with a b of dollars out there um and i think that you know entities like sports business journal um covering those things make sense and is good but i have yet to hear a barroom argument settled by somebody saying yeah but the cowboys made more money last year so there you know i i think what fans want is they want their teams to be competitive and they want their teams to have some sense of cohesion and they they want their teams to have a shot and you know the genius of the nfl in addition to everything else it has going for it is it is built for competitive balance and between the draft and the slotted schedule and the other and the salary cap that allows an Indianapolis to compete with a, a New York or a Chicago or a Los Angeles. All those things mean no matter how bad you were last year, you've got some semblance of a chance this year. And, you know, that's true, even though the scale of pro football, and I think the, the statistic is that 82 of the 100 most watched television programs last year or football games. That's true no matter how much money, um, no matter how much money the NFL makes. And yes, there is so much attention paid to it. And yes, the the collective greed of the owners is disconcerting and at times infuriating. Um, I didn't know a single sports fan, even among the most most football crazy fans I know, there wasn't a single one that said, oh, the NFL would be so much better if they added a 17th regular season game. Um, it was a craven decision and it showed no regard for the health of the players, no regard for the, you know, the, the kind of structural sanctity of a 16 game regular season. It was just a naked cash grab. And yet um, it's not like we're going to watch, not watch that 17th game if you love your particular team, whether they're the Eagles or the Rams or the Cowboys, you're probably going to make time to watch all 17 of those games. And so I think that even though the greed has become a part of it, when the game is compelling, you know, the NBA and the playoffs, the Stanley Cup playoffs, um, postseason in baseball and, you know, throughout the regular seasons in pro and college football, it's just so damn compelling and watchable um, that I, I don't think people are going to quit it soon. Um, there are certainly things to be concerned about, but it's still great fun, you know? Well, the one, the only sort of asterisk I put on, on that sort of negative comment that I threw at you uh, in an unfair manner was uh, the idea that uh, there, there's probably since perhaps the 1970s, probably this is there hasn't been more of a wellspring of uh, new types of leagues and sports and pro circuits for all kinds of things. I think this is sort of a renaissance for that kind of stuff. I and mean, we've got three going on. Well, I think it's, it's four going on three pickleball leagues and uh, athletes unlimited for women, you know, to have the sort of a team based kind of 
thing with with points for individual status and stuff. I there's some really cool things out there. I I'm not sure if spike ball is one of them per se, or if slam ball needs to come back and become a real sport with betting propositions attached to it. But but you know the, the with, with lots of mostly or a lot of private equity money floating around or, or people with cash that uh, don't know really what to do with it. Um, it's it's going to be fascinating. I do think, however, for a little show like this, uh, it is uh, early grist for future episodes. Uh, I won't give away which yes. ones I think are, are going to be those, but uh, I, it's it's a fascinating time. It feels to me a little like, again, more resonant with what was going on in the 70s, albeit from a different perspective, but no shortage of people I want to step up to the plate figuratively uh, sure. and do sports and, with, with money. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to recommend about pickleball. Um, you know, any sport that you can participate while holding a drink in one hand. Um, but I also, boy, it's, I've played it a couple times and I've seen it and it's, it's a great social game. It, it really has a, a stupid name, you know? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who decided to call it pickleball and who wanted to market that. That still seems a, a PR minus to me. But then I, I'm not a private equity investor, so what do I know? Um, when you uh, were doing the research for this book and stuff, uh, how um, did you come across any situations where you thought for sure something had happened the way you remembered it? And through the research, you discovered it wasn't quite that way or perhaps even vice versa? Vice versa. I was... Um, when I started uh, researching college basketball... I was at first puzzled and then amazed to recognize that throughout the first part of the 70s, the tournament proper, the elimination of teams playing tournament games, actually began on the final weekend of the regular season for major college teams. It was billed, if you go back to the ESPN College Basketball Encyclopedia, you will see that at that time in the 70s, it was a 25-team tournament. What it was, in fact, was a 16-team tournament with um, nine play-in games from smaller conferences on that final weekend of the regular season. And it made no sense to me because among my earliest memories was the 32-team field in which the the regular season ended and then the following Thursday and Friday you would start to have those those tournament games played but that wasn't how it started and it was just because of that it was it was kind of an attenuated um not really easily followed event in which those opening you know you you'd just find out who won the Big 10 title because of course at the beginning of the decade only one team from each conference qualified for the tournament while on the same day that, you know, say Iowa was beating Wisconsin to win the Big Ten, Idaho State would be playing Brigham Young in what was essentially an opening round game of the NCAA tournament. So that made no sense, but that was how it was done then. And so, you know, one of the things that you talked about, which was all the different, um, all the different things that were tried during the 70s, I think Part of what happened in the in that era was a maturation of sports and a formalization, a standardization of how sports tournaments should be run, how leagues should be run, 
what playoff structures would be like, the, those things became much more codified and much more standardized um, in the course of over the course of the 70s as as sports began to mature. Yeah, I mean, growing up in New, in northern New Jersey, it was always uh, Rutgers was always in that situation, and it, whether they were they were always in the play in game, and they they it was a rarity if they actually made the tournament because of that. But then, yeah, right. it was interesting because nationally, people weren't focused on the play in games; they were just focused on the the actual teams that made the tournament. But I was uh, like you, I was intrigued by the fact that there were these teams that that hadn't truly made it yet, and are they truly tournament teams per se or not? And obviously, that's become right. more codified. Exactly. What other, um, uh, any other sort of things maybe that you discovered in this, like uh, any little uh, bits and pieces that perhaps that you you just may have missed? Like, for example, in our little exploration of of all things forgotten, right? I mean, um, I was barely aware, if that, uh, about the National Women's Football League, for example, which right. had its semi-moment in time, mostly in the 1970s. Uh, were there any things that you kind of just didn't know kind of existed and and maybe sort of discovered for the first time in this thing from the 70s. I think the thing that I had not been aware of was the advent of the International Women's Professional Softball Association, which started in the mid 70s. And um, Billie Jean King and several women on the LPGA tour um, started to provide financing for that. And it starred the, the softball legend. She's in the Softball Hall of Fame, Joan Joyce, who was a tremendous athlete in her own right. And, and also, I, I think at some point in her career, also had an LPGA card. Um, and so, that you know, that was something that never crossed the transom of the Kansas City Times. And the fact that it, you know, when you take a look at how popular softball is becoming today, and I think... Um, it might have been this year or it could have been last year. The softball college world series got higher Nielsen ratings than the baseball college world series. Um, you, you, you just see that people were blazing the trail and, and setting the course and they may not have, you know, those leagues may not have survived, but they, they, they sort of made a dent in the firmament and, and, you know, provided inspiration for future generations to come back. And, you know, now I, a lot of people think softball is going to be the next big women's sport to break through. I still got my money on volleyball, but both of them are, are growing by leaps and bounds in the 2020s. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree. And again, 1970s, uh, some, some birthing of some of the original pro attempts as, as we've talked about. Yeah. The women's professional softball league, uh, you mentioned Billie Jean King, Jim Jorgensen, who was a, a character in various, uh, startup kinds of leagues. And of course, uh, the late great, uh, and former guest of ours twice uh, Dennis Murphy, right. Uh, mm -hmm. added again, uh, this one right. didn't have as much a uh, bite, let's say as, uh, some of his earlier efforts, but, um, it is, uh, and it's fascinating. I, 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 I am uh, intrigued by. You mentioned volleyball and softball. Um, the, the, I think it's always been sort of like: is there a tour kind of model for said sport? Is there a team kind of model for said sport? Right. And what I, I'm intrigued by things like Athletes Unlimited that kind of makes a sort of a team kind of effort, or even uh, the Premier Lacrosse League, right? Which. Mm -hmm which is actually going to revert back to what I understand is going to be um, geographical teams. So that, there's a bit of a learning there, but this idea of sort of a, 
traveling, I don't call it a spectacle, but a show. Um, but in, in the case of Athletes Unlimited, it's it's unique in that the, the, the revenues are generated by individual performances, yet within the boundaries of team rankings and performance. And right. I, I think it's a brilliant model I, I and, and perhaps helps sustain some of these smaller sports to perhaps nurture them to get to a point where they could be, say, city-based, team-based, you know, traditional leagues per se. And world team tennis had some of that as well. There was a there was sort of a bonus structure if you, you know, regardless of how your team did, if you won more sets or games, um, you made out better as well. So I I think there's there were the seeds of that even then. All right, what are you time to promote? What are you uh, what are you doing for uh, this book? According to the back sleeve of this uh, uh, preview copy that I got, you're going to be talking to anybody who moves. It seems uh, going to be talking to a lot of people. Uh, there is a uh, we're we're starting the book tour on the day of release in my hometown of Kansas City, so that's October 10th, um, with a big event put on by the wonderful independent bookseller Rainy Day Books. Um, and the next night, I'm going to be in my um, former stomping grounds of St. Louis um, for an event sponsored by Left Bank Books, um, and both of those events are going to be conversations. Um, the Tuesday is going to be a conversation with Vahe Gregorian, the terrific sports columnist for the Kansas City Star. And then Wednesday, October 11th at uh, Left Bank Books in St. Louis, I'm going to be talking to the wonderful writer and essayist Gerald Early um, about the 70s in sports. And there are, um, I think there's going to be a Morning Joe appearance on MSNBC sometime that week and then other events to follow. But the book hits on Tuesday, October 10th, and is available for pre-order now. And um, it's uh, it was a labor of love, and I I think it is, it is a piece of work that I hope you didn't have to be alive in the 70s to appreciate, but I think most people who were sports fans back then will find... Um, a thing or two of interest in the in the course of the narrative. I've been kind of waiting for a book like this that kind of kind of synthesizes sort of sort of all of that. And um, dare I say, there's a documentary that could uh, come from out of this. I know you're not a documentary documentarian by trade, but what do you think? Uh, it's it's something that I think is uh, it would be perfect for. It would be very ambitious um, because most sports documentaries focus on just like one year or one team or one sport. So the budget that would be necessary for a broad social history documentary where you'd have to go into the archives of the NFL and the NBA and find old ABA footage, it's a much more ambitious project. But yes, that is something that uh, I would love to see happen. All right. I told you at the beginning of the show, and I'm reiterating it now. Get the book. Run, Don't Walk to get your copy of this uh, indispensable history of the 1970s and sports uh, laden with tons of great stuff from our little pocket of interest, the all things forgotten challenger leagues and that kind of stuff, but so much more. Uh, and all the great memories of the seventies and the uh, pivotal moments that have transformed sports. And uh, some of which uh, continue on 
uh, to this very day. It's called The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. It is published by Grand Central Press. It is available now wherever you get books. Of course, you can get a copy of it uh, through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Michael McCambridge, numbered 321. Although, of course, you will find episode number three with Michael McCambridge back uh, for our Lamar Hunt conversation. That's a, worth a listen to and and the book uh, purchased from as well. But uh, by clicking on that link, you will be taken to uh, Amazon where you can get, uh, let's see, you can get it hardcover fashion. You can get it in Kindle fashion. You can also get it as an audio book or an audio CD. He's got every medium covered for you to ingest this great uh, uh, survey of the 1970s and sports. And of course, when you do that from our website, uh, you give us a couple of referral uh, nickels and dimes, and we appreciate that very much. You can follow Michael uh, across uh, the interwebs, uh, let's see, on uh, Twitter X or X Twitter or whatever it is. You can follow him at McCambridge, that's M-A-C, Cambridge, C-A-M-B-R-I-D-G-E, McCambridge. Uh, you can follow uh, him also on Instagram at McCambridge. And uh, his website is Michael McCambridge, all one word, dot com. Uh, while you're online, again, bookmark and visit regularly our website. Again, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, that's where every episode uh, that we've ever done resides uh, in uh, perpetuity. Uh, you can stream it. You can share it with people, all that kind of stuff. Grab a couple of clips, whatever you want to do. Uh, of course, the best way, though, to get this show is to make sure that you uh, follow us or subscribe to us in whatever form that you uh, do so for podcasts. And we publish every early Monday morning, uh, God forbid, or God willing, I should say. God forbid we don't get to do that every week, uh, but we do. We do our best to do so. Uh, what else? You can um, uh, go to uh, our various social media as well and follow us uh, with our little uh, blurbs of what uh, is being published that week. Uh, out there in the ether on uh, Twitter X, we are at uh, Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram and Facebook as well. Both of those places at Good Seats Still available. Our web, uh, our web, our email address. Yes, please get that out of the way. Hello, hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy there. And uh, our thanks to uh, Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Uh, it's been a time uh, with his Atlanta Braves. Let's keep it at that. And, um, until next week, more fun and frivolity headed your way. Hope you enjoyed the proceedings this week. And until next week, uh, be safe, everybody, and uh, we'll see you.